0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Sebittis. This is the fourth and final episode of our seventh season, as well as our last episode of 2022. Here at the Center for Mark Twain Studies, we don't make decisions based on damned lies and statistics, but I think it's worth noting that this year, y'all made this one of the most followed, most downloaded and most shared academic podcasts in the world, and among the top 10% most popular podcasts, period. I am extremely grateful that you have found it worthy of your attention, and even more so that you have been telling your friends and colleagues about it. I'm also grateful to the 38 guests who helped make it such a successful year, irregardless of any metric including Mika Teram who co-produced and guest hosted our summer season on Mark Twain Among the Indians. And special thanks also to Dan Reeder, Steve Webb, The Snarlin Yarns and Squirt Gun who generously lent us their music. This is also our 49th episode and I expect to have a very special 50th for you sometime in the new year. Rest assured, we have several series in development for 2023 including one marking the sesquicentennial of Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner's The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. The economist who most comprehensively surveyed the conditions of the Gilded Age as it was happening was Henry George. Throughout the 1880s, Twain was George's publisher, putting his socialist political economy into circulation and often alluding to it in his own writings. The season we are now concluding, Social Problems, is named after one of George's books, in which he predicted the transatlantic nations of Europe and North America were on the precipice of a prolonged crisis, one driven foremost by what he called the march of concentration. Not only the grotesque concentrations of industrial wealth frequently associated with the era, but also concentrations of power made possible by private control of distribution technologies which had come to define the Victorian age. These technologies and the magnates who controlled them were, as George argued, less reliable and socially progressive than the public was inclined to believe. In A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Twain's most Georgian novel, Hank Morgan, describes the inventors of these technologies, among them Alexander Graham Bell, Johannes Gutenberg, and James Watt, as the creators of the world after God. Critics often cite this passage as evidence of Twain's embrace of the Gilded Age's manic capitalist technophilia. They fail to remember that thereafter Twain shows the narrator who endorses this worldview, creating one of the most violent and self-cannibalizing dystopias in 19th century fiction. It is a tale of today. In the first three episodes of this season, I think we have dutifully captured the spirit of Twain and George's technopocalypticism in our age of polycrisis. But as Jeff Jarvis cites in this episode, Twain was not, nor should we be, all doom and gloom about new media and the potential social changes which emanate from them. We close this season talking with two scholars embedded in publishing. During the second half of this episode, you'll meet Rebecca Colesworthy, senior acquisitions editor for SUNY Press and author of Returning the Gift, Modernism, and the Thought of Exchange. But we begin with Jeff Jarvis, who is the Leonard Toe Professor of Journalism Innovation and Director of the Toe Knight Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism at CUNY's Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. Jarvis's lengthy career in journalism includes the founding of Entertainment Weekly and Buzz Machine, as well as editorial and executive stints with the Chicago Tribune, New York Daily News, People Magazine, and many others. He is also the author of four books about publishing in the digital age, most recently, Geeks Bearing Gifts, Imagining New Futures for the News, and forthcoming in 2023, The Gutenberg Parenthesis, The Age of Print and Its Lessons for the Age of the Internet. The conversations in this episode were both recorded on December 7th, but I think you'll find, despite the ongoing performative disruptions to Elon Musk's Twitter, nothing has changed substantially enough to discredit even our most topical speculations. For more about this episode, including a bibliography, please visit marktwinstudies.com backslash the Twitter elegance. a pretty vocal, I think, throughout your career about the positive effects that social media and particularly Twitter have had on journalism. And even as we maybe move into a new phase of social media, you have been quick to remind us that something may be lost. What is the good that Twitter serves particularly maybe to journalists, right? But also to the consumers of journalism.
2: So since we both like the same period in history in media, I'm gonna start actually there. The mechanization and industrialization of media led to mass media, led to the creation of the idea of the mass. Uh, Before we had the steam-powered press, the average circulation of a daily newspaper in the US was 4,000. It was a Substack newsletter. Yeah. And once mechanization, industrialization, corporatization, centralization of media came in, we ended up with mass media, Which I, and I've learned to view mass as an insult to the public. it's a way of erasing people, of not dealing with them, as John Kerry has said. So what Twitter did, finally to your point, is that it finally allowed some cracks in the public discourse for the people who had too long been left out of mass media because they didn't look like me, white and male and privileged and speaking English. People could come into Twitter and establish their place to have a community. And I'm not talking about a public sphere or a public square because I think that also is mass thinking. That's believing that there's a single monolithic view. And I learned a lot about this from Andre Brock Jr. who wrote the book, distributed blackness. When I looked at what happened with Twitter, and I, and I think that Black Lives Matter, in my view, is almost an expression of a racial reformation in America. And January 6th is a racial counter-reformation. And so I analogized to print and movable type in Gutenberg then. And I was judging its success on that basis. And Andre t- taught me in his book and in, in tweets since, no. Yes, it's fine that black Americans use the hashtag uh, to make a campaign to reach out to the rest of the world, but that's not why black Twitter exists and that's not the value of it. The value of it, Andre teaches, is that it's a place for black people to be themselves, not under white gaze, not under white uh, approval in an internet that is otherwise white, and to have their joys and their sorrows and simply be alive. Twitter enabled both. The internet, the way I see it, is an embodiment of the First Amendment. And to the rest of the world, that's seen as good and bad. We have the right not only to speak, but also to assemble and to act. So Twitter enabled people to speak, assemble, and act. And yes, we over, I, among many others, had an overblown sense of its importance probably in the Arab Spring and in other movements. It's a place to protest and to file grievances, less to build, And so sometimes it gets judged harshly, but I think it's very important that movements could coalesce. People could gather around a hashtag, could imbue meaning in it, could take action with it. At the same time, they could have their everyday communities there, not dependent upon gatekeepers, not dependent upon media. Media have much to learn there. It inspired me in great measure to start our degree at the Newmark Journalism School at CUNY in engagement journalism with my colleague Carrie Brown, where we teach the students to go find a community of self-definition to observe and to listen and to reflect and then to consider what journalism to bring, not to act as the gatekeeper. Social media taught me that and taught me a different way to imagine journalism.
1: Again, to, to go back to a period that we both adore, one of the things that we see with the newspaper, with the Penny Press Revolution of the mid-19th century, is this diversification. On the one hand, it seems this sort of growth to the point where the Civil War breaks out. There's billions of issues of newspapers and periodicals being published across the American territories after, as you said, only a few decades earlier, it had been concentrated almost entirely on the Eastern seaboard, only really a few hundred papers, almost entirely for a very wealthy merchant class. Like you said, the sort of mass mediaization of the newspaper during that period is oftentimes read as a kind of reach to a larger audience. And for a few publications, the New York Herald, the New York Tribune, et cetera, that that was the case. But for the most part, it was actually more of a nichification, a diversification. Newspapers popping up in very remote locations, serving very specific, sometimes political interests many times political interests, but also particular races and immigrant groups and so on and so forth. Yes. That there are thousands of newspapers in mid-19th century America that are designed for a relatively small audience who otherwise has no ability to communicate with each other consistently, right? And I love thinking about Twitter in those terms, right? That it's not really about the fact that it has this enormous reach, though it does, but also that you can create much smaller, more nuanced communities within it. And I guess my question is, what happens to those communities
2: now? I worry about that greatly. And I've been watching this with tremendous interest in the uh, migration to Mastodon by some people. Mm -hmm. So I'm on Mastodon. Um, you know, my, my great, vast experience of, of a month now. Yeah. Uh, I taught a course in in, in Mastodon at the, the school on, on Monday. I've been really interested in watching it, but what interests me most, I think, is the discussion around Black Twitter and the lack of affordances for Black Twitter there. Uh, Meredith Clark, who's a leading expert in Black Twitter, now at Northeastern, uh, had her come to speak to our engagement journalism class, and I asked her, will there be a Black Mastodon? And she said, "I I'm, as of now, I'm not at all sure. Uh, Andre Brock, who I mentioned earlier, uh, has said, we're we're hanging on to Twitter. We built too much there. And then on Mastodon, there's a scholar named uh, Jonathan Flowers, who's been really interesting on the topic because he's explaining to people why these affordances matter. The primary affordance that's missing on Mastodon on purpose is the quote tweet. Eugen Rochko, the Russian-German who started Mastodon in 2016, believes or believed at the time that quote tweets along with full text search enabled trolling and bad behavior. And his argument is not a bad one, it's, it's interesting. He said, when you when you comment on someone else's post, you're having a conversation with that person. When you quote tweet, you're being performative, right. using that person's ideas. And you're saying more about yourself. That's what leads to stark and showing off and so on and so forth. But it also leads to many other things. It leads to context, it leads to information, it leads to disagreement, it leads to discussion. And in black Twitter, it enables call and response as a cultural motif. And so Flowers has talked about why this is necessary. And when he does, the reception on Mastodon is really interesting because I I empathize with the folks on Mastodon who've been there since 2016 who are saying, oh hell, here goes the neighborhood, everybody's coming in. The norms that we cared about, the content warnings and the quiet of Mastodon can get trampled over by people like me, arriving so I'm, I'm empathetic with that but hey that's life with tools Idiot. norms are emergent within them i watched one of the pioneers of various things we know scold flowers almost and say you know get used to it this is what it is or the second response is you know go start your own instance or or write your own software and as flowers said back that's that's just geeks way to say you. you. on mastodon it's been fascinating because i have i said there one day that I'm also on Twitter. I'm staying there for now. Jelani Cobb, who's the uh, new dean of the Columbia Journalism School, our competition uptown, (laughs) wrote a New Yorker piece about how he was leaving Twitter. And I said on Mastodon that I understood, but I sided more with Sarah Kenzior, who said that one should never give up territory in an information war. Cobb came after me and said, well, you know, it's a fool's errand to try to fight this war. Uh, and then one thing about Mastodon is this: if Twitter is about snarking, Mastodon's about scolding. That's the bad side of each, I think. So I got a lot of scolding coming on. Oh, you're supporting the Nazi musk. You can't be there at all. And I'd say, well, no, I'm trying to draw people over. I'm trying to, but, but there's still something there. And the, the self-righteousness on the Mastodon side was really kind of amusing to watch. People who have been there for six hours now suddenly decided they had great virtue. I'm conscious that it's not easy to move a community. It reminds me of white flight and suburbs. It reminds me of people abandoning the city and saying, oh, come on here, except you're not really welcome here. They could be welcomed on Mastodon. I think that there are ways to do it. I see more coming in, but I also fully understand that it's a case of privilege for me to pick up and find a bunch of academics and a bunch of journalists in Mastodon and not have the magic that occurred on Twitter that couldn't occur in media. Right. I can be in media too. I've been in media my whole career. I train people to go out into media. We have a magnificently, beautifully diverse student body. But when they arrive in those newsrooms, their careers are often not developed. They aren't heard. Their experiences are seen as too small. So I have to have an appreciation of the value and difficulty of what was built on Twitter. At the same time, I think it's going to hell because I'm suddenly seeing a lot more right-wing crap that musk is forcing in my eyeballs the advertising is desperate now i don't know how long it'll last i worry that if it literally goes away things are are irretrievably lost in our culture and here i'm going to give a little plug
0: for
1: the archiving black twitter project organized by meredith d clark who jeff mentioned earlier check it out at her website, meredithdclark.com backslash archiving Black Twitter. There are, you know, scholars and researchers who are trying to preserve its archives to the best of their ability, but it already was, and it will be even more so, a Herculean task to try to do so. One of the great joys of my career has been seeing the archive of American newspapers come back to us, almost back from the grave, through the work of a lot of really great digital humanities projects, but also using the tools of the internet to be able to then share those archives in a way that was impossible to think of prior to about a decade ago. But I I do wonder if the project of preserving this platform era, and particularly things like Twitter and Facebook, which may enter a period of obsolescence, that that project may be in some ways even more difficult even though this digital footprint would seem to make it more resilient and lasting right but the centrifugal force working upon that automatic archival mechanism is the virulent protection of so-called corporate proprietary information and the insular brand consciousness of profit-oriented platforms. This is where the scale of Twitter actually matters and is a kind of virtue. Musk clearly entered into this with characteristic arrogance that he could own something and could then control it. And what we have seen over and over again is that in a networked media environment, especially one that is as large and diverse and has the scale that Twitter does, even somebody who takes it into a private ownership capacity can't really make it work exactly the way he wants it to even to the extent that maybe the media moguls of previous eras could right the rupert murdoch or the the randolph hearst right that this thing is kind of too big to be wielded and i do worry that if we do abandon it for political reasons and and sometimes for you know relatively virtuous political reasons is that we are turning it over and then maybe losing that maybe pretty unprecedented claim that actual users have, actual consumers, actual the readers have on a media technology.
2: So I I won't plug it yet because my book isn't out until next June, but in, in the Gutenberg Parenthesis, the book that will be coming out, what I learned in looking at the era of print is that I think we misconceive of public discourse as content. Right. That In the Gutenberg era, the fact that there was there was a container holding something, made something within it content, and it had an alpha and an omega, and it was owned and controlled and, and packaged and produced. And that was our Weltanschauung, our, our worldview then of what had been public discourse. And I can argue that public discourse started to go away with print or with Montaigne, when writing became a, a prerequisite to enter public discourse, or as we've already discussed, with the mechanization, industrialization, and corporatization of an ownership of media. So, so, so in both your points about the archive and Musk, I think that we can't see the trees for the forest. We're lo- used to looking at Twitter as if it's an entity, and I, I, I'm driven crazy when I see headlines that says, Twitter says, or Twitter goes crazy. There is no entity of Twitter. It's, it's, it's a few million individuals and the voices if you choose to hear them. When you try to preserve the archive of Twitter, you're not preserving the real value of Twitter, which is, as Mark Zuckerberg saw early on on Facebook, the social graph, our relationships and our connections. That's the real value. When Musk thinks that what he now owns and controls is the megaphone for content, he has his media property, it's not. It's the relationships that entangle underneath and the meaning that they have. And so I think we return at last, at long last, to a sense of public discourse. We're only just be- beginning to learn how to relearn, how to hold a public conversation as it was taken over by media low this half millennium. And that's what confuses people. What Twitter is, isn't the words we put there. What Twitter is, is our conversation, is our interaction, is the connections that we make. The jokes we tell, the arguments we get into, the support we give each other, the humanity that comes out of all that. And Facebook, to an extent, started to see that and then lost sight of it. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason that Mastodon is appealing to me because so far I find a greater quality of discourse there. It's not just because there's 500 characters versus 280. It's also just by not having cool tweets, by not having the search, by not having other mechanisms, you kind of have nothing else to do but sit and talk with each other. And it reminds us that that's the value that we have is is conversation and public discourse. The, The issue we have now is not whether we can speak. Speech is becoming a commodity, hallelujah. What we're missing now is not gatekeeping, but discovery. I happen to have in front of me the first page of the first issue of Harper's Magazine in 1850. And in the second paragraph of that first page, it says, the design of the publishers in issuing this work is to place within the reach of the great mass of the American people, the unbounded treasures of the periodical literature of the present day. Periodicals enlist and absorb much of the literary talent, the creative genius, the scholarly accomplishment of the present age so harper's original mission was curatorial Mm -hmm. let's find the good stuff yeah right and what do we see in the discussion about online today let's play whack-a-mole with the bad stuff right let's get rid of the disinformation let's get rid of the hate let's get right then everything will be okay there's always been idiocy it's always going to be there And i think that's a natural reflex in the early days of more abundant speech is to number one the people who held the power to speak resent new entrants And number two, people are gonna play with this new freedom and do things others don't like as we negotiate norms and figure out what's acceptable. And so we're gonna concentrate on the bad stuff. It's time to start concentrating on the good stuff. What Musk cannot realize, because he's he's just too stupid, humanistically stupid, is that the value of what he has is the human connections and the ability to find the good stuff. What gives me hope about the federated universe Mastodon at all on Activity Pub is that I would like to see the ability on those protocols for entrants to come in and build new services to find the good stuff, to support the good stuff, to be the Harpers of the present day. Now in time Harper has left its curatorial mission and said we're going to make our own proprietary stuff and become known by that, right? And that's a, that's a natural progression. Uh, I think, in media. But we're still at a very early stage of this internet thing, and I think that there is a huge opportunity to reach across this vast conversation we have and find the smart people, the authoritative people, the expert people, the artistic people, the funny people, the engaging people, all of those things, and, and, and things they have to say and to recommend them and connect them with us. That There's a whole bunch of opportunity ahead for that. Yeah.
1: I love that. I, I love thinking of it that way, and it builds upon conversations that we had with Ian Bogost and and Olivia Snow in earlier episodes about what I think is this sort of fundamental paradox or tension. You may be more optimistic about it than they were, or at least than, than Ian was. It is the challenge of this moment. I utterly agree with you. The thing that made Twitter pleasurable in a kind of behavioral way was the interactions, the conversation, being able to form these connections with people who you otherwise might not have come in contact with, personal, professional, however it was framed, and start to have oftentimes threaded conversations that only two or three or four or five people were looking at, right? But that you were learning from each other and engaging with each other in ways that were really satisfying and were maybe replacing, particularly during the pandemic, right? Replacing some of the social contact that are being lost in an age of overwork and attention drain and overstimulation so on and so forth. But there is then this tension right that at the same time Twitter is this amplification device and and one of its virtues is that it has the ability as you said to find voices who aren't being platformed elsewhere and prove that there are people that want to listen to them. That's the challenge that we face now is, Going viral is one of the most unpleasant things, as Olivia Snow said, one of the most unpleasant things that can happen to you on Twitter. It is also the way in which Twitter creates opportunities for new perspectives, right? It's a challenge that faces Mastodon and the new version of Twitter and however else we go forward, right, is that the things that are painful on the platform are also in many cases, it's social virtues. The individual pain can be the social virtue.
2: Yeah, Ian is a brilliant provocateur. Uh, yeah. And full disclosure is that I, I have a manuscript now in his hands for the Object <laughs> lesson series about the magazine as object, which is why I have that Harper's quote easy at hand for my research. <laughs> and he wrote a piece in The Atlantic, you know, the, the Journal of Hot Takes of today, right, saying that, maybe we're speaking too much. Yeah. Now, in certain contexts, that scares me to death. If people say that there's too much speech and there are some academics out there who are writing papers about there being too much speech and then who the hell decides whose speech is too much? Right. I don't wanna go down that path. But Ian was making a different point in a, different, in a better way of saying basically, shouldn't we shut ourselves up sometimes? Don't we, are we talking too much? And I, and I take the point and I think it's a wise provocation though, ain't nothing gonna happen to shut us up, right? We're all gonna talk too much. Given the opportunity to talk, I'm the worst among them, I'll take it and I'll I'll blather on as I'm doing right now. Again, the challenge then instead becomes to find the good in that. And there's all kinds of institutions that are gonna have to be rethought. The notion of copyright, the metaphor of property, the notion of content. uh, I think all become, uh, I hesitate to say obsolete because they won't go away, but they are inadequate to a world of abundant speech, and what we're really fighting about now in the internet is speech. I just wrote a piece for the New European. Uh, there was a, there was a Guardian headline that basically said, uh, and I'm misquoting it completely, but but the essence of it was that Musk's absolutist free speech shows the limits of. So there's that there's this effort to control speech, to curtail speech, that worries me greatly. And what I argue is that. Musk is not by any means engaging in absolutist free speech. He's hiding the fascism, racism, misogyny, and hate of his n- new friends on the far right behind that veil of free speech. And whenever they get criticized, they claim cancel culture. When Apple doesn't give Musk what he wants, he claims a violation. They, you, you don't believe in free speech. It's all BS. It's complete BS. It has nothing to do with the first amendment obviously because that's government or even with the doctrines of free speech. I think we have to welcome the speech. We have to welcome, it's never that there are new voices. The voices have always been there. They just weren't heard. And we have to welcome the opportunity to hear them and then ask what is the infrastructure to build for that? And I don't think we're there. Siva Vadyanathan at the University of Virginia you know, says it was a mistake of hubris for Facebook to think of connecting the world. I respect Siva immensely, and he's a friend, but he and I disagree there. I think that our instinct is going to be to connect as much as we can, to speak as much as we can. The question then is what institutions do we create atop that?
1: I want to ask one final question, and this is a topical current events question that that may be to some extent irrelevant by the time this is even published but i'm I'm writing something about the twitter files i'm working on something about the twitter files right now i have next to no interest in discussing the contents of the so-called twitter files it's for one thing as with any story that's so obviously planted it's difficult to take it seriously or to constructively evaluate the legitimacy of its evidence and claims but and moreover none of the the supposed bombshells at least so far that musk and taibi have dropped seem to me all that remarkable it's you know it's pretty p- pedestrian stuff that's being shoehorned into pre-existing conspiratorial narratives and it appeals to the confirmation biases of his new friends as you called him this sort of partisan base it doesn't seem substantive enough to persuade anybody even in the most sensationalized form that isn't already persuaded, but what does interest me about it is how it's being disseminated, right? That these two independent journalists, right? It sort of brings together some aspects of the platform economy that we are currently in, right? These two independent journalists with mainstream credentials, but who are now independent Substack subscription journalists, they were handpicked by Twitter to break an investigative story about Twitter on Twitter (laughs) and well it's pretty transparent it's a like transparent tried and true formula for propaganda that's at the macro level the details I think are more interesting right a private mogul run social media company that is turning itself into a kind of bullhorn, right? Into a more traditional, ideologically consistent news organization that tries to present its account of the world. And I I mean, I'm pretty sure Twitter blasted Taibbi's thread to pretty much all of its users, just as they have been doing with most of Musk's tweets, right? That this stuff is unblockable, unmutable, and thus has a reach of hundreds of millions regardless of how inflated you believe Twitter's daily active user stats are, it's a huge number of people across a wide range of de- demographics who are being delivered a propaganda campaign. And I'm not sure there's really a precedent in terms of scale. Of all the things that have happened since Musk took over, many of them sort of haphazard, haphazard, rolled back, unclear what the plan is. This actually seems to be a coherent plan, whether it's one that will be successful or not, it seems to have a coherence to it. And I wondered, as a journalist, as thinking about the the industry of journalism, how do we address this attempt to sort of co-opt Twitter? A lot of people say, oh, well, if he turns it into Truth Social, it'll fail because that platform is failing, right? I don't think that's necessarily true just because Twitter is there, it is established, it has this scale already. And turning it into a bullhorn is something that is going to have to be actively resisted in some ways.
2: It's fascinating. It's a great question, uh, which as I always say is a way that a professor buys time to come up with an answer. I think there's a paradox here that relates to the tech clash, relates to the anti-tech and anti-media movements that are around. There were conspiracy theories from various perspectives that Mark Zuckerberg is using this platform to brainwash the world, right? right? Or that Twitter was doing the same. It was all a bunch of liberals doing this bad stuff, right? I think what we see now is exactly what you just painted, is that you see uh taibi and barry weiss and tie them in with the rest of the group the greenwalds and the jonathan hates and all of these essentially conservative in the new definition of conservative white whiny cancel culture people who are conspiracy theorists who want to be the object of conspiracies uh, because it makes them more important and the self-importance that they all have you're all going after
1: me a mar- martyrdom
2: complex. Exactly. And we're like, let me just do a, a, a little bit of an aside. Regina Rini is a philosophy scholar in Canada who wrote a wonderful thread about two years ago about debate about debate. And she said, there are the, on, on the one hand, there are the people who want to add to, uh, in my words, a, a, a glossary of things that should or should not be said in, in polite and decent society right? Uh, I'm old enough that I remember the days when women were called girls, but we know not to do that anymore. Now we we try to respect people's pronouns. On the other side are the people who don't want to change, who don't like being criticized, who don't like being told what to do and resist it. And she calls those the status quo warriors. And I think that's ironically, paradoxically, what Taibbi and Musk and company are. They're acting like revolutionaries. They're acting like they're they're trying to 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 do new things. In fact, all they're trying to do is protect their own power and their own status. And they are using Twitter in the way that they'd accused Facebook and Google of doing, of going against one side. They're doing exactly what they were accusing the other side of doing that the other side really wasn't. As soon as Bush took over, one of my tweets was, you're all going to miss Zuck now. You're going to wish for Zuck because he sure looks good, doesn't he? Alex Stamos, uh, who was on on the This Week in Google podcast I'm on, you know, said last week that probably Zuckerberg's very happy everything that's happening at Twitter because it makes him look good. Oh, for sure. <laughs> you know? Oh,
1: it distracted from the Facebook files. That's oh for boy. Sure.
2: Oh, has it ever? Yeah. And and made Facebook look much more benign than what's occurring now. So what you make me think about, Matt, is what you're asking is where could this go next? As usual, big old media don't know what to do with this. They don't understand, as Jay Rosen says, they, they have no sense of how to understand asymmetry. And there's an asymmetrical thing happening here where one side, the right, is doing awful things like tearing down the institutions of democracy, and the other side is put in a position of equivalency that, that Overton windows all the bad stuff on the far right. And so, you know, you saw some stories in mainstream media about the Taibbi stuff said, well, it opens a debate about journalism. Ugh, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't at all. Uh, That's BS, I saw it in the Washington Post, I saw it in Axios, Uh, that's ridiculous. We should look at it with the clear eye that you put to it, which is that Musk and Taibbi and Weiss and company are presenting their propaganda. They could have done so before on Twitter, but now they can do so in a controlling way. And it does come back to the affordances, right? In my algorithmic feed on Twitter, which I miss, And i miss it on Mastodon too. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd say, well, what did I miss? And here's some good stuff. That was his function. And it worked pretty well for me. I would go to the Cron and I'd I'd miss stuff. So so I liked it. Well, now what's happening is that the barest excuse is found to feed me with right-wing crap. I don't follow Ted Cruz. I got Ted Cruz yesterday. And the great outline above it was that somebody I know in in journalism follows his account. Their ergo, you're going to be interested in this, Jeff.
1: No, BS. It wasn't that they retweeted. It wasn't that they even liked it. It wasn't that they engaged with it. It was the mere follow. Exactly.
2: It was the the barest veil of an excuse to shove this in front of my eyeballs, right? So yes, he is using this to the extreme. He's putting all his stuff out there for his own ego, and he's taking all his right-wing friends and putting them before us because he thinks that's going to make him a hero with them. And of course, it's going to ruin what credibility the platform has, just as he ruined the value of verification. You know, I argued in the early days, I think the only dividends he's going to get are from Putin and G. But I think you raise the better, more generic question, which is Twitter and Musk aside, the fact that one person can control this and use it in a venal way shows us what's possible. Which brings me back to Mastodon Activity Pub and the Fediverse, it's no shining light on the hill. It has its faults, but as an architecture, the fact that no one can own it deals with that question. Now, there's other problems there is, is, is that, as Mike Masnick says in TechDirt, uh, moderation at scale is an impossibility. That's the Masnick theorem. A bunch of volunteer moderators are going to find this extremely difficult, number one. Number two, they're going to find themselves harassed especially if Section 230 in the United States goes away, where people are going to try to sue their asses into bankruptcy. Number three, regulators having regulated for the big companies of Twitter and Facebook in a classic case of regulatory capture, uh, they can afford to deal with the regulation and the compliance, and these little guys, and these volunteers can't. So I don't want to make the mistake again of putting too much hope into one new technical architecture. It's not about technology, it's about us, it's about humanity. Mike Basnick, again, wrote a brilliant piece for the Columbia First Amendment Center called uh, Protocols Over Platforms. The platform architecture was perhaps necessary for a while because it brought in venture money, it brought in investment, it brought in innovation, it enabled Google to become this incredible tool for us. And I wrote a book called What Would Google Do? And full disclosure, by the way, my school gets money from both Facebook and Google. Yep. <laughs> but I, I think Google's an amazing thing and it could not have happened in a federated universe. Wikipedia happened centralized, but volunteer and is, is, a, is a phenomenon. Twitter, I think had to learn a lot of lessons by being a company. Jack Dorsey said it was a mistake to make it a company. And I think he's right. I think that, that probably Evan Biz would agree too now, but there were lessons learned. So how do we take those lessons from the platform era and bring them to a, what we hope might be a protocol era of openness and open source sharing and federation and transparency while being aware of new dangers and new threats. What's our goal in the end? I think it is to recapture the public discourse that was lost in the era of mass media. We're gonna do it fitfully and we're gonna make mistakes and bad guys are going to manipulate it. That's the biggest lesson of all. I'll end on, on this because it's it goes to your heart. I, I made the first page of my book, The Gutenberg Parenthesis, a piece that Mark Twain wrote uh, honoring the 500-year birthday of, of Johannes Gutenberg. It's a wonderful little piece because Twain looks back and tries to judge the value of printing and books over that half millennium and acknowledges the problems that it brought, but lists the benefits that it brought and says that in the end, in total, we benefited from this. We figured it out. Yeah, we had a 30 years war, a reformation, a counter-reformation, lots of peasant wars, all kinds of things that probably haven't even ended as of this day. But we figured it out. And I think we'll figure out the internet too.
1: That was Jeff Jarvis. He alludes to a letter sent to the founders of the Gutenberg Museum in 1900 which was thereafter the only English-language text included in the materials promoting the museum's opening. Twain writes, Gutenberg's invention is incomparably the mightiest event that has ever happened in profane history. It created a new, wonderful earth and along with it a new hell. It has set peoples free and other peoples it has enslaved. It is the father and protector of human liberty and it has made despotisms possible where they were not possible before. Twain's ambivalence about technological innovation both follows from his ambivalence about the myth of progress generally, and anticipates contemporary media theory. But he does conclude that the evil wrought through Gutenberg's mighty invention is immeasurably outbalanced by the good it has brought to the race of men. Never content being pigeonholed as a humorist or novelist, Twain frequently emphasized his comprehensive experience in the printing industry. As a typesetter reporter editor and publisher who remained a proud and iconic associate of various guilds even in the final years of his life for our final interview of this season we turn to a scholar who can talk about academic publishing from multiple vantage points as well as about the impact social media and especially twitter has had upon it rebecca colesworthy is a senior acquisitions editor at suny press where she has extensively contributed to the catalog in women's and gender studies, queer studies, critical university studies, and post-45 cultural studies. A Cornell PhD with a focus in transnational modernism and economic criticism, she is also the author of Returning the Gift, Modernism and the Thought of Exchange, and co-editor of How Abstract Is It? Thinking Capital Now. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash I noticed that you crowdsourced a question to Twitter uh, a few days ago. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm going to reflect that back to you. What you asked some of your colleagues and contacts from mm-hmm. university presses was, are you concerned about the impact of whatever happens with Twitter and or leaving this site on your work, whether that's acquisitions, marketing, whatever. So I... Just think that it's a very good question. It's one of the things I wanted to talk about today. What is the impact of this going to be on university presses specifically, but then maybe we can broaden out to the larger academy?
3: I assume anything I've said publicly is fair game. I am fully ready to generalize on the basis of the like eight to nine people who replied to me and tell you exactly what the impact will be. As with many industries, I'm sure for some presses, And for a lot of editors, it may mean nothing. University presses vary as much as the institutions to which they partially belong. And I'll just, you know, name names. I'm sure that Oxford University Press has a huge, huge marketing team and a significant number of people and resources devoted to things like Twitter. But I'm not sure at the end of the day that Twitter engagement means so much to them in terms of sales it really will be a loss probably for a fair number of presses in the sort of smaller to middle range texas for example university of texas press they're already a pretty big press but you know they really I think capitalized on the success of Go Ahead in the Rain, the the memoir about Tribe Called Quest that they published a few years ago that got a ton of attention. We've seen other presses do this too. West Virginia is always the press that comes to mind. They literally have a staff of like six people. But Derek Grisaw, who's the director, is out there, I mean, doing a lot of what I try to do online, too, which is just, you know, sort of advocating for university presses, advocating for those that aren't the biggest presses.
1: And Disha Filia yes. won a National Book Award from yeah. that press just a couple of yeah. years ago, or was it last year? It was recent, yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly. And now she's doing all this fantastic stuff in collaboration with Kais Lemon, who is now in MacArthur. I
1: just want to clean up a little something here. Dishaphylia's The Secret Lives of Church Ladies did not win the National Book Award in 2020, but it was a finalist and it did win the Penn Faulkner Award.
3: Derek was someone I found very quickly after I started using twitter a few years ago was clearly a sort of voice of advocacy but i think has also just really maneuvered the platform in a really smart way so i mean i've seen other publishers say to him like wait you have how few people it is a small operation making a really big impact for a lot of us You know, it's the intellectual community, it's some of the social capital, all of that. You know, I mean, those are losses that will be felt. Um, I've already seen an editorial director say that he's leaving Twitter because one of his authors was suspended, whose work is on Ukraine. Um, And so there are various, you know, kind of suspicions about what potentially led to that. I guess the thing I would really want to say about it, though, is that uh, in the academic community and in the publishing community, We're seeing certain fissures that maybe a certain kind of engagement on Twitter has allowed us to overlook or traverse. In publishing, we are an industry that hugely, hugely depends on the freelance sector. A lot of stuff is outsourced. A lot of stuff has just been stripped away over time, right? The thing I endlessly tell people that surprises them is that, like, I don't really have time to read manuscripts. Like, developmental editing really isn't built into my job. I mean, I can barely find time to read proposals. I mean, it's like with anything, right? I mean, as professor, how much of your job becomes service and emails and all of that? Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is very different responses to what's happening from those for whom it's not just about social capital, mm-hmm. for those for whom it's not just about, like, oh, the intellectual community, but it really is a source of work. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely had freelancers who responded and said, I guess I'll go back to word of mouth or, you know, LinkedIn or right. just other access points. That is something I worry about for sure.
1: You know, the reemergence of a kind of stratification between smaller and larger or medium presses between r1 institutions and liberal Mm -hmm. arts colleges and community college like that is definitely one thing we see at least within the kind of academics twitter sphere in which we are both uh, embedded there is an undeniable democratizing effect Mm -hmm. that there is interaction and engagement between people who are working in very different jobs in very different institutions and yet at least in that space we feel as though we are part of a holistic community, mm-hmm. though at times there's a necessary calling out of those differences, as I, as I know you you are want to do yourself, right? <laughs> but I, I think that is one of the really important questions about what we might lose mm-hmm. specific to academia, but though I'm sure there is an analogous effect in other Twitter niches. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that you have freelancers and gig workers, who are looking for and going back to other means of work. I hesitate to give too much credit to Twitter just because I know the amount of traffic it actually generates is relatively small. But there's also lots of network effects that can't be closely measured. Is there a way to reproduce or what kinds of strategies do you foresee trying to reproduce the good that might be associated with twitter right if it does indeed become untenable
3: yeah no i'm glad you said that because i I sort of i want to go into this saying that none of this is meant as an endorsement of the platform itself or something like that i mean i've always said that what's best and worst about it is the people right (laughs) and that like remains the case for me on mastodon or anywhere else as well and you know which i'm sure sounds awful and sort of troglodyte-ish, right like obviously the tech is important and it drives certain behaviors etc cetera, etc cetera. but at the end of the day what I have valued most there is certain people so I don't I don't want to glorify or, or romanticize Twitter but I do I've sort of been wrestling with personally has it now done the job for me that it was supposed to do. I mean, I started using it strictly in a professional capacity because I was making a huge career transition. <laughs> a lot of people because of things I say online assume that I must have made the transition directly from a PhD program to being an acquisitions editor, but in fact there were many years between those things. I had a postdoc I just happened to move to this area and then started working at a university press. I got the job cold, no connections or anything. Now I'm probably sharing way too much. But it's significant because basically what it it means is, you know, I mean, I had an academic background and came in with certain scholarly connections and all of that, but had like no background in publishing per se. I mean, I was working on my own monograph, had a contract, had worked in publishing from the scholarly side of things, the author side, but didn't have the whatever 200 connections on LinkedIn that other people bring in. So, I mean, I I very much turned to the platform for the same reason that a lot of freelancers and gig workers do right which is to build those connections like i would go to conferences meet other publishers i of course had no idea who they were which is like awful and embarrassing and did all kinds of inappropriate things like oh what do you do at such and such important press that i should actually know but don't but you know they would all say like oh where were you before Right. And I was supposed to be able to like point to some other table in the exhibit hall and Mm -hmm. say, Oh, look at all those books I acquired there. Look at how, you know, representative they are of how talented I am and my interests. And I had none of that. So, I mean, I very much use Twitter initially to just kind of like build a public record of who I was. Mm -hmm. I acquire in education. I'm really interested in books that take a critical approach to higher education in particular. So I've probably ill-advisedly and mistakenly use that as an excuse to say all kinds of very shouty critical things about higher education as if I have tenure, which I of course don't and could technically be fired at any time. I have a lot of the loose bonds, the broader kind of like social network and all of those sorts of goods that attach to this kind of engagement. And so it's just kind of can't be rebuilt elsewhere, but I'm also not sure that I need it to in a way I'm confronting. I think for a lot of people in publishing, I think including gig workers, freelancers, but also a lot of people in academia, like it's hard, right? I'm sort of always kind of thinking across the two groups, which do and don't overlap in different ways, is that, you know, I mean, it does take on this kind of like para-institutional space, Academic Twitter is not academia, right? right? It's not the university. The vast majority of professors aren't on there. They have no idea what's going on there. And it doesn't really matter. Right. Like it's not quote unquote real world, but also it is. That's precisely why it becomes a certain kind of space for some people in ways that do sometimes ramify quite materially, Mm -hmm. can be a direct source of income, but also in that sort of broader secondary community building sort of way.
1: Thinking primarily about the academy and maybe even more specifically university presses, does this sort Mm -hmm. of happen at a bad time right does this exacerbate an already mm. ongoing crisis and i think about mm. when when my career started and i had you know no twitter account no social media accounts whatsoever you know that was nah. not, not even on the fringes of my thinking i did understand that conferencing was an important form of networking and right. that particularly there was several occasions where people from presses made an effort to reach out, make connections with me, to ask about what mm-hmm. I was working on, to see if I would be willing mm-hmm. to undertake some sort of project that they were, uh, you know, recruiting for. Mm-hmm. And I think that that form of networking is already in danger. Yeah, definitely more so since 2020. But that process was already starting, right, because budgets are shrinking. Travel funding is shrinking. The conferencing is less and less integrated with the job market. And the job market is more and more, um, you know, putrid. It strikes me that a lot of the way that academic publishing worked Mm -hmm. just isn't realistic as we see, you know, major conferences cut in half in terms of attendance or more.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. also
1: university presses, I presume, you know, shrinking in staff so that you, first of all, probably aren't getting the travel funding just as the rest of us are, but also as the conferences sort of spread out, you can't right? necessarily staff all right. of them.
3: What's funny, even when you started talking, there are a couple things. I think I suspect we may have finished around the same time, but I thought, oh my god, do other editors have time to reach out to authors and say, "Hey, I'd really like to talk to you." <laughs> I haven't had time to do that in years.
1: Yeah, they did at one point. I can I, I can also say I haven't had that in several years
3: either. As far as editors go, I'm a total like do as a say, not as I did person because I have had the joy of turning my own dissertation into a book. You couldn't have paid me to go talk to an editor in an exhibit hall at a conference like there there was no way on earth I was ever going to do that and this is the part where someone at home is like oh that's why she didn't get an academic job. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the question of is is this a bad time for it because Whew. Well, so it's already the case, right? That as you're acknowledging the exhibit hall at MLA has gotten progressively a lot smaller over the years and a lot smaller since I started going the year before the crash. My first one was 2007 when it was still between Christmas and New Year's. Right. I've learned so much being on the other side and have a totally different take on why things like exhibiting at conferences is important. So a fellow editor at another university press said to me at MLA a few years ago, yeah, literary scholars don't buy books, which would surely come as a shock to you (laughs) and anyone listening to this. But it's true that maybe for some presses that are able to afford to send enough Display copies to sell on site, there's a you know an even trade-off there in terms of the cost of going and how much they're ranking and in sales. Like authors want to see their book there, they would love to see a poster of their book there, right? Like they read it as significant for marketing and promotion. Mm -hmm. But from my perspective, it's not no, right? I mean, it's for acquisitions, but it's for acquisitions, not just in that it's a chance to meet with authors. It's a chance for authors to go, oh, that press is really invested in marketing and promoting my book. It doesn't all add up, right? That doesn't mean we're actually making the money in sales to make that worthwhile, though it may be worthwhile in the sort of long game of does it drive acquisitions, et cetera, et cetera. It's precisely because our presence there is important to authors that it can mean a real loss, even if it's not a loss in sales per se on site. Does it come at a terrible moment? Yes. I mean, it's interesting, you know, I mean, editors that I see and watch talk online. Right. So as with academia, it's the vast majority of us are not on Twitter. And yet I'm going to wildly generalize based on that, but have really missed conferences. Like I've missed in-person conferences too, but I also think i'm definitely not sure that i want to travel as much mm-hmm. when i was hired it was to acquire in three to four fields i now acquire in like i don't know six to eight or more and we're a small staff if you do have it in your budget to go it's very few people to do a lot of travel right i have had conversations with the fellow editors kind of going through the same thing you know who've always loved travel who have desperately wanted to get back to it but the last couple of years have prompted hopefully a lot of really good reflection in the industry about what have the sacrifices always been so not just like oh how does the pandemic change things but also have we been ignoring the potential push pull between work and family this entire time every time i've stood on a chair to like hang up a banner or a proposal i've you know thought about some of the potential ableism that's built into the industry you know, there are all kinds of things in, in job descriptions about like being able to lift heavy boxes and things like that. Right. There are bigger conversations to be had. I mean, I'll be honest, social media, Twitter's the primary way I learn about a lot of union organizing efforts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. Is this crisis coming at a bad time? Is <laughs> the crisis of Twitter, <laughs> is Twitter's potential demise coming at a bad time in terms of concatenating crises? I mean, that...
1: I don't see those things as accidental. I, I think that actually part of the acquisition of twitter by a a notorious anti-labor figure who Mm -hmm. you know happens to be acquiring the platform that has been most crucial this is not that the labor movement is going to you know go away or be defeated or anything like that but merely as you said this is the primary way i learned about labor organizing in a variety Mm -hmm. of fields, including academia from a distance. Exactly. And so that part of it will go away. Yeah. Organizers do not depend upon Twitter. Right. But there is a benefit to it that certainly was observable and I can't help, but assume is part of the right wing pushback Mm -hmm. against
3: Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People mentioned like the Arab Spring, right? There are examples we can point to of it's very clear real-time utility, right? right. To, to organizers. though so that's in a different context, of course. I mean, at the same time, I always have this nagging feeling that now I'm going to use we in a very loose, imprecise way, but I've, like failed to use it as much as we could. Right. And I think especially coming from a background and in, in, in I acquire in women's studies, right? And I think about the sort of uses that have been made of different forms of publishing and communication and, you know, and it's sort of like, it should all be easier now. <laughs> and yet I have these moments where I'm like, we fully use this to its capacity? Mm-hmm. This, I think,
1: builds off of, you observed earlier that one of the downsides of Twitter's at least temporary increasing non-participation from academics is that there is currently no alternative mm-hmm. that is satisfactory, right? That this is a a very text preferable community, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, text centric community and Instagram, TikTok, these, these things just don't they they can't be superimposed upon the existing academic Twitter community. And this brings me to one of our shared interests, which is a kind of moment in modernism where there is a recognition that the emergence and perpetuation and hegemony of finance capital alongside new media and particularly mass media has created an environment where Gertrude Stein says it best. Money is what words are and words are what money is. And, and it strikes me that Twitter is a kind of antecedent to that. You know, this, this is one of the clearest ways Not one of the only ways, but one of the clearest and most transparent ways in which somebody who communicates well can turn that into professional benefit, maybe even directly monetize Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. These were all the observations that Stein and Keynes and Wolf Mm -hmm. were making and that you 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 talk about to some extent Mm -hmm. in your book. Mm -hmm. I wanted to think about it in those terms as well. How do you see this as a moment where not just academic Twitter, not just university presses acquisitions, but also like text culture is being threatened to some degree?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. So it's funny because actually, I mean, when you, you mentioned Stein, because I mean, when you say this, you know, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about, particularly as I've, I've slowly started to experiment, pun unintended, with Mastodon is that shockingly, perhaps, I'm the weird literary critic that is like pro, more confining character limits, Mm -hmm. just like the open-ended just like talk for days. And I say this as someone who totally, you know, adds lots of tweets on and ends up with long threads that I never intended to be a thread and totally ramble, but also I'm anti-edit button, I'm firmly anti-edit button. I have very strong feelings about this. So that's actually where my brain immediately goes when you mention Stein, right? Is mm-hmm. that like I actually appreciate the formal constraints of Twitter. And that's totally part of its appeal for me. It's also shameful how long I will spend cramming as much as I can <laughs> into that tiny character count. But I see value in it for that reason. It's what maybe allows me to pretend it's still a certain kind of writing. But yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's...
3: Yeah, like I'm very, I'm attached to the form in a way.
1: It does force you to compose.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one's writing for oneself and strangers, right? But... Mm -hmm. um, but your question is about the-
1: Or do, you know, when people aren't on Twitter as much, they go back to reading books. Like, that could be a good thing.
3: I mean, I don't know. You're on a session at MLA, right? There, There's like not a person who does books in sight, right? <laughs> Apparently all literary theory is happening other places, right? Podcasts and-
1: Oh, well, I, I think, yeah, I think Anna and, and Merve would probably uh, contend otherwise. But, right, yeah. no. It's just... But I take your point.
3: I mean, all of what you're describing- Right. In terms of this kind of like convertibility, you know, I listened to the episode with Ian where, you know, he talked about the sort of the idea that everyone deserves this, this microphone and audience by sheer dint of the fact that you have it at your fingertips. I mean, earlier, you know, I suggested that it can become this space for those who may be marginalized or feel marginalized in certain ways in and by formal institutions. And so we've talked about that some in terms of freelancers, right? And the, you know, the development of these full sectors around the in-house publishing team. I also think of that in terms of my own role as a, you know, quote unquote independent scholar. I didn't start using Twitter to build an audience for my book or to promote my book, but I am beyond positive that it is the way most people have become familiar with it. Like I'm not getting invited to give talks on it, which is fine. I'm also not like proposing sessions on it, right? So I mean, that's about me as much as anything. It has absolutely enabled me to do things and find an audience in ways that I wouldn't have, that I know I wouldn't have. There are also ways in which that's like a problem though. I mean, not at my core anti-institutional at all, I think publishing, like all industries, right, also offloads a lot onto authors and authors would be the first ones to complain about right. that and tell you yeah. how we are failing
1: to market and promote their books. It's, it's not that many steps from the citizen journalist that has been so widely promoted in the musk era on twitter to the the citizen scholar the citizen professor
0: that
1: one of the things the institution does although it certainly exerts all sorts of power and marginalizes certain voices and exploits workers and all, all of that one of the things the institution does is to kind of code expertise in a way that Twitter is actively, at least at this moment, trying to decode.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, where I'm coming from with this is that, I mean, I think especially in the field of modernist studies, one of the things that I've seen, though it's happening in lit studies more broadly under different rubrics, sometimes it's linked to post-critique, sometimes it's linked to different intellectual histories, but, you know, is, is different sorts of valorization of amateurism or the lay reader and I mean I have many different takes on that you know on all of this some of which are linked to my role as editor and you know I've like ideas for days there right about this kind of like fictional construct of the general, read, you know, the general educated reader or whatever, right. but like scholar me is like, I'm wary of romanticizing the outsider in mm-hmm. some ways, right? Like I've, like I've absolutely made use of and capitalized on these different para-whatever <laughs> structures and platforms mm-hmm. that have enabled me to like keep doing different things, even though I'm not a faculty member, right. et cetera. And I'm aware of how publishing yeah. as well makes use of all that and sort of, yeah. you know, and like deputizes, right, <laughs> and like responsibilizes the individual to do that for themselves. One
1: of the things that we get better at, though, as you said earlier, we're reading maybe less and less, despite getting further and further into our academic careers, is we get better and better at reading the damn institution, right? And then, right. And then using its increasing legibility to our benefit,
3: yeah, exactly. Like, if when there's ever another critical project in me, it's probably about something related to this. Hard economics, but, like, exchange more broadly conceived. Mm-hmm. We can, like, romanticize certain kinds of gift economies till the end of time, etc. I mean, there are different kinds of, again, like, rubrics under which this operates, right? Or, or gets valorized. And I'm, I'm just, in my heart of hearts, deeply wary.
1: Right. One final question I wanted to give you was... What are you looking for from authors these days?
3: <laughs> well, I expect you to have a really strong author platform and be really active on Twitter to sell lots of copies of your book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Participate in marketing and promotion. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Make your own posters. It's yeah.
3: most important that you get out there.
1: One of the things that interests me about what I have been doing through the podcast, which I expect in some small way, emulates some of what you see as acquisitions editor is that, Mm -hmm. like, I start to see the full breadth of scholarship, Mm -hmm. of course, not the full breadth, but I'm going way Mm -hmm. outside and way beyond my comfort zone and the fields that I specialize in the move towards generalist is i'm sure mm-hmm. something that is associated with any job that is as you put it earlier is kind of para academic right not mm-hmm. not a faculty mm-hmm. member who's teaching modernism or teaching 19th century right. american but like is doing a wide variety of things and
3: well, no one teaches that anymore right yeah <laughs>
1: exactly and so, therefore has this increasingly cross disciplinary engagement Mm -hmm, and mm so i guess yeah, what i'm interested in in from your perspective is like what are gaps right what are some things that seem to be missing what are the kinds of, of of projects that you would like to see more of given what maybe you don't have to say this but what you see a lot of
3: oh that's a great question i'm going to start by saying something very honest which is that I work on a lot of series, which means that a lot of my acquisitions do get in part mediated through series, which doesn't mean that I'm not actively involved, that I'm not making decisions, that there's no curatorial whatever. You know, I have really strong relationships with series editors. And so that shapes a lot of it. But that said, That also means that I kind of get really excited about projects that don't necessarily fall in a series. That is where a lot of the 20th and 21st century literary and cultural studies falls, but also for all you 19th centuryists out there, you know, we have a really robust Victorian studies, long 19th century studies series. But I, I am actually, and I'm not just saying this, interested in doing more C19 American. I'm always a sucker for work on labor in, in all different categories. But, you know, it is genuinely the case that author enthusiasm is contagious. Uh oh, I'm kind of like hedging a little here because, you know, I, th- I feel like what can feel really freeing to some authors feels scary and overwhelming and pushy to others. I think a lot of us editors want to see big ideas, right? Want to see books that don't feel overly hemmed in by increasingly questionable dated periodizations that may not even line up with hiring anymore. I mean, right, there's just all these disconnects, right, between the sort of like the fields of scholarly organizations versus the fields that are actually being hired in. They look different everywhere. And so I totally hear authors talk about like they feel this pressure from university presses to write this like big crossover book with big ideas. And so on the one hand, I kind of want to like be the defender of the smaller idea. Mm-hmm. And I'm lucky, actually. I mean, I work insofar as, while a lot of my acquisitions are mediated through series, I do also have a lot of autonomy. And we are a press that still does a lot of monographs that are very much tailored to a very specific, specialized audience.
1: Archive-driven monograph. I'm
3: a modernist. I'm a champion of difficulty for the sake of difficulty, right? (laughs) I don't, you know, I get excited by projects that really are traversing those different boundaries and don't feel overly hemmed in by them in a way that sometimes feels symptomatic of trying to get a job. I mean, I'm skeptical of turning crises into opportunities, but like the total shittiness of the tenure track job market. Yeah. <laughs> like what's the book you actually want to write? Right. You know, <laughs> if it's not yeah. if it's not as obviously tied to institutional advancement that can make things more open-ended. I've also done it and I know how hard it is to do that on
1: these issues end up being very, like, both, and, 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 and. That was Rebecca work. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash the Twitter elegy. I hope you have enjoyed this season, Social Problems, as well as the previous series from this year, The World's Work, Mark Twain Among the Indians, and HBO from Pulp Prestige. If you are so inclined, please write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Send us a message at twaincenter at elmira.edu or a few bucks via PayPal from marktwainstudies.com. We will be back in 2023. Until then, for one final time, here's squirt Gun with
0: Social. I'm Matt Zeebush. Thanks for listening.